right, why don't, uh, why don't we get started? Uh, I am not Alex Jones. Uh, I'm Fritz Mayer. I'm a fellow here. I'm a normally a professor of, of political science and public policy at Duke, but I'm a fellow for the semester at the Shorenstein Center. And Alex, unfortunately, is ill. Uh, and so I'm standing in for him. He sends his apologies. Um, uh, ground rules, I think we, you all know, we have one hour. Um, our speaker will sh speak for a short while, and then we'll open for questions. Students first. Uh, cell phones off, uh, on the record. I think I've covered everything. Um, it's, uh, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker uh, today for, for, um, for many reasons. Um, uh, Marvin Kalb, uh, as is really someone who needs no introduction probably to most of you, but he was, of course, the founding director of this center. Uh, and uh, most importantly, my boss at, at that time. Uh, I was then a graduate student here at the Kennedy School, and I think I was the first research assistant of the center, along with Nancy Palmer, who was here so, uh, back then. So it's, uh, it's absolutely wonderful for me to come full circle or, 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 or back to where I look, to my roots here. You didn't have a great uh, beard then, I guess. No. <laughs> I can still hear Marvin's booming voice and the peck of his manual typewriter. <laughs> Uh, um, before coming uh, here, as you, I think you all know, uh, Marvin was for 30 years um, an award-winning reporter uh, with CBS and NBC News. Really quite an extraordinary career, beginning with being hired by Edward R. Murrow, um, uh, being the host of Meet the Press and many other uh, things as well. Uh, he's been a prolific author, uh, nine nonfiction books, two novels, I don't know. Time to do that. Um, continues to be uh, uh, very active um, in, in now based in Washington. Uh, 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 really quite a remarkable uh, career uh, in, in journalism. Um, and of course, was covering for all those years the topic of his current book, um, which is uh, about what she's speaking today, which is the haunting legacy Vietnam and uh, American presidency, which um, uh, I just had a chance to, to, to read through quickly, but it's absolutely fascinating account of our memory of the Vietnam War continues to frame uh, American decisions about war and peace to this day. Incredibly kindly book, even though it's about not quite ancient history, but still somewhat distant history, still with us. So wonderful to see you. And Thank you. Uh, Thank you very, very much. Um, yes, I do feel at home sitting here. <laughs> no question about that. I thoroughly approve of the photograph of the around there. <laughs> In fact, I didn't even recognize it. And I'm sorry that Alex is uh, not here, and I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, to return to the Shorenstein Center and to talk about uh, the book that um, we just finished, we, meaning Debbie, my daughter. I've had two daughters. One of them is Debbie, the other is Judy. And Debbie is the one that I've worked with for the last five and a half years now, trying to come up with the idea for this book, researching it, and writing it. Uh, it has been, some people have said that it's a labor of love. It's not quite that because um, too many people have died in Vietnam for it to be a labor of love. But it is something that has absorbed me for a long, long time. 
what is it about this war that had the impact upon our societies that it did have? I've always thought that when a great power loses a war, and it's the first war that the great power has ever lost, you sit back and you have to say to yourself, well, what impact is this going to have? What impact is this going to have upon the United States? Linda Johnson referred to Vietnam as a raggedy-ass little fourth-rate country. And yet that raggedy-ass little fourth-rate country beat the United States of America. So how is that possible? And do you walk away from that kind of a defeat without it leaving very powerful legacies behind? Very powerful. And when this book got started really in the 2004 election, I was totally fascinated by the Swift Boat Veterans, Swift Boat Veterans. And these were people who worked with John Kerry in Vietnam, and they had, um, you're invited. Um, the Swift Boat Veterans were um, people who worked with Kerry, and then would have let him off. They would have probably not gone after him as they did in 04, except for the fact that Kerry spoke before Fulbright Center Foreign Relations Committee in 1971, and I, I was there on them recovering the story. It was, an, it was an extraordinary testimony. It was this young man, came in in khakis with just a couple of medals, and he raised a question about, summarized in two uh, questions that he himself kept going back to. Who's going to be the last man to die for a mistake? Who will be the last man to die in Vietnam? And for those of you who uh, spend any time with this book, uh, you'll find that 99.9% .9 of it is a reporter's book, um, by which I mean that Debbie is a reporter and I'm a reporter, and we went after the facts and tried to line them up as best we could and explain a complicated problem. But in the last paragraph, I allowed myself to cut loose just a little bit. And I went ahead and picked up the, those two questions of Kerry's and put it into a modern context and updated those questions are, who would be the last man to die for Karzai? Who will be the last man to die in Afghanistan? And I find those questions extremely important and powerful, and they tug at me. And they have, over the last five years, it's been more and more. Because the last chapter is called Good Enough. Why? Because when you talk to the embassy people in Kabul, they will all tell you that what we're seeking there is not a victory. We're not seeking either a loss. What we want is something good enough to be acceptable to the American people. And I've reached a point, I guess, in my life where I think that good enough is not good enough. I think that it's unacceptable to be involved in a war today where the only thing that the administration is seeking is a result good enough to be politically acceptable to the American people. That is my point. When we um, decided to do this very much as a Kennedy School study, by the way, because 
each one of the chapters of this book can be lifted and used uh, separate from the book itself uh, because each one of them has to do with another president. And it's seven presidents, and we both learned an enormous amount um, about these, these presidents. I, I covered a number of them, and I thought I knew them. But the one I have to tell you that I really did not know well enough was Ronald Reagan. Um, I accepted the view of most journalists and probably covered Reagan in, in much that way as a Hollywood actor, thin, not read that well, um, but a good sense of the American people and a very good politician. But when you read his diaries and when you read his letters, which is something that we both did for almost all of the, of the seven presidents, a tremendous learning experience, by the way. What you learn about Reagan is there were so many extra dimensions to the man, which I simply did not appreciate. And as a reporter, I wish I could go back and cover him all over again. I would have given him much better marks than I did at the time. All seven of the presidents were affected deeply by Vietnam. But each responded to that in a different way. Um, for example, let's pick up the Reagan episode. I'll only do two or three of the presidents because we don't have the time. In October of 1983, 241 Marines were murdered in their barracks in Beirut at the International Airport, at the end of that airport near the city. What did Reagan do at that time? Nothing. He did absolutely nothing. When you read his letters, you find a wonderful explanation about why he did nothing. He said the American people had been spooked by Vietnam, and he didn't want to put them through a similar experience in the Middle East. And he thought that if we went in, and retaliated and bombed Baalbek, which is a historic town in Lebanon up in the mountains. That if you went in there and you did that, you would anger the entire Arab world. And the defense secretary, Caspar Weinberger, was 100% against any <coughs> retaliation of any kind. And he was against anything that could have upset the Arabs. And he was very concerned about the flow of oil. And he said this quite openly. On the other side, there was Bud McFarland, the National Security Advisor, and George Shultz, the Secretary of State, both former Marines, who wanted very much for the US to go in and clobber them. Because in fact, Bill Casey, the head of the CIA, knew and told um, Reagan exactly where the people were who did this job. In fact, he gave them their hotel rooms in a hotel in but they wouldn't do that. Reagan would not do that for the <coughs> spooky reason. On the other hand, take a president like, like Bush one. When the Iraqi army moved into um, Kuwait, at the beginning, Bush one didn't want to do anything. But then he was encouraged to do something, in part by Maggie Thatcher, Prime Minister of Great Britain at the time, and in part by something within his own gut feeling about a world order. And one of the best examples of how governments should work 
was the example of Bush one and the way in which he responded to the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. The people around him were very smart and they did things in a very uh, contained, uh, focused, clever way. And of all of them, of all of the seven presidents, I think that Bush one provides the best example of presidential leadership at a time of a national crisis. Now, you could argue, of course, that he didn't have to do anything about Kuwait. What business is it of ours? Why do something at all? But he was determined to do something, and he did it in a way that um, uh, was 90 percent, um, uh, I'm suggesting in a very positive way, 90 percent very well done. The 10 percent was the question. Why uh, not go up to Baghdad and get rid of the guy who started the whole thing? That would have been a sensible thing to do at the time. And it was argued very, very forcefully. But they decided not to because Brent Scowcroft, among others, and, and Jim Baker, Secretary of State, and Brent Scowcroft, National Security Advisor, both thinking Vietnam, said if we go on up into Baghdad, we're going to get ourselves into something that we don't really understand. We don't know enough about the politics of Iraq to get on in there, depose one leader. Who are you going to put in? How are you going to select that person? I mean, we've had that problem more recently. <laughs> How do you select that person? What are you going to do about it? And so they couldn't come up really with the right explanation, so Bush one decided we're not going there. And it was a command presidential decision, and it's not going to happen. But because of Vietnam, he followed the Powell Doctrine. Now, some of you may remember that. You're old enough, some of you. The Powell Doctrine is a product of the Vietnam War, drawn up by Powell, by Caspar Weinberger, and Ronald Reagan. All of them had a hand in the creation of that doctrine. And what that doctrine said was, look, we screwed up big time in Vietnam, but we're not going to do that again. What we're going to do is if we commit American force, it has to be on our timetable. <coughs> we will determine when we do things and when we pull out, when we go in and when we pull out. And we have to know exactly how we're going to pull out. It's not going to be something we'll stumble upon when we're in there. No, we're going to know that in advance. When we send troops in, we're going to send overwhelming force. We're going to clobber the enemy, whoever that happens to be, and then get out. The American people, Vietnam again, are too impatient with wars of this sort. So if you decide to go in, short, quick, massive application of American power, and then out. And that is exactly what he did. Now, you could immediately say, well, is that what we are following now, for example? And the answer is to an extent, but not the same. The most fascinating president of the seven, in my book, is Obama. Why? Obama was three years old when the war got going in Vietnam, and he was 13 when the war ended, April 30, 1975. When he became president, in other words, there was no need for him to carry the baggage of Vietnam with him. He could just 
have walked away from it, not picked it up at all, and yet. When he was running for office in July 2008, when he made the obligatory visit to the battlefronts, he went to Iraq and Afghanistan, he went over there with two Senate colleagues, one Jack Reed of Rhode Island and the other Chuck Hagel of Nebraska, Democrat and Republican. They got on a plane from Andrews Air Force Base to go to Kuwait City is 14 hours, 16 hours back. What did they talk about? <coughs> Going to Iraq and Afghanistan. What was on his mind? Vietnam. When you talk to the two senators, they were astounded by the fact that it was Vietnam that absorbed Obama at that time. That was the thing he wanted to know more about. Is there something with can we learn something that if I'm president, I will learn not to do in Afghanistan, not to do. He, would, he wanted all of the knots lined up. Um, I found that fascinating. And I must say the two senators did as well. When he came into office, he's elected. His first National Security Council meeting, he does a whole speech on why Afghanistan is not Vietnam. He didn't have to do that, but it's on his brain. Um, throughout an extraordinary, long, torturous examination of our Afghan policy in the summer, early fall of 2009, at the very heart of the debate was a book that they read in the White House and a book that they read at the Pentagon. The book they read at the White House is by a young scholar named Gordon Goldstein, and he wrote a book called Lessons in Disaster. And it has to do with McGeorge Bundy working for President Kennedy <coughs> Johnson in the early 1960s. And what Goldstein writes is that uh, not only was uh, uh, Bundy acknowledging towards the end of his life that the decisions that he sort of imposed upon both presidents in his time in office, that these decisions were wrong. They were not based on good information. He should never have gone down that road. And Goldstein simply um, ticks off the major decisions and shows the effect negatively on American policy. And that was in Obama's mind, and it was in the National Security, Jim Jones's mind, the four-star general. <coughs> Um, it was in their minds that they're going to go more deeply into Afghanistan, but if they do, how can they be absolutely sure that they are not going to make the same mistakes again? Um, at the Pentagon, Louis Sorley's book called The Better War was the book that was sort of the bestseller at the Pentagon. And what this said was, actually, we didn't lose the Vietnam War. Congress lost the war by pulling funds. The White House lost the war by chickening out, not having the guts to stand up. And, and he makes the point, uh, Sorley, who was a former uh, Army officer, he makes the point, and by the way, Sorley has just done a book which is coming out this week in Westmoreland, which should be an interesting book to read, too. But Sorley kept on saying over and over again, his line was exactly the opposite. We not only didn't lose, 
but every single battle that the United States Army participated in, we won. That was his argument. The Pentagon loved that, and they would sit down with the president, the president, and they would take two absolutely diametrically opposite points of view, and it was for the president to make up his mind what to do. In the middle of all of this, McChrystal comes in and, and and Bob Woodward, somehow or another, in a typical Woodward way, got a hold of the McChrystal recommendations on the number of troops. And he gave the president three options. 80,000 additional troops. We could really do the job with those. 10,000, we can't do the job terribly well, but we won't lose. Well, 30,000, oh, 40,000. The president ended up at 30. And that would be sort of the middle ground, which Kissinger always used to say is where they end up anyway. And that's where the president ended up. The point is that with Obama, what was very much in his mind was <coughs> 1949, China, Richard Nixon, who lost China? Who lost China? And Obama's a very smart guy, and he reads a lot. And he reads a lot of American history, and he reads a lot about former presidents. And in his reading of Harry Truman, he came upon this thing, and it made a profound impact upon him. And so his policy now ends up being good enough. But it's good enough because he does not want to be a Democrat who loses a war. He figured that that would be just about the worst thing that the Democratic Party could suffer, would be the loss of another war. And I feel... Um, that while I understand his, his point of view, um, it just seems to me that we have been in Afghanistan for so long with results that are still highly problematic. Look at the front page of the New York Times today and you get yet another piece of a problem having to do with the people we are building up with a proper democratic spirit sufficient so they torture people in that. And then is the United States then, and it's going to come up in the press within another day, two, three, doesn't that mean that um, the U.S. has benefited from torture, uh, even if other guys are doing it and not Americans as such? So um, I think I've gone on enough, but I think you get the thrust of, of haunting legacy. And why haunting legacy? Because... <coughs> With each one of these presidents, it is a haunting presence. General David Barno, who was our commanding officer in <coughs> Afghanistan from 04 to 06, told me that there was never a meeting in Afghanistan where he sat down with the senior people, where one, where one or another would say, are you sure? We're not doing something that Linda Johnson did, or uh, are we <clears throat> making the same mistakes all over again? And I tried to say in an op-ed piece uh, Sunday that you don't now have to use the word Vietnam because Vietnam has has um, insinuated itself into the bloodstream of American policymakers and into American presidents. They can simply say, I don't want to get involved. Do we have an exit strategy? Do we have enough troops? 
and you know what they're talking about. Uh, it's Vietnam War. Well, thank you very much. Let me, let me um, uh, prerogative of the chair, uh, quick, quick questions. Um, you, uh, it's fascinating you, you, that Obama, who was so young yes. when this happened, yes. still haunted by the legacy. Yes. yes. So the question, sort of a two-part question, is how long does this last? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't end with the, you know, the, the memories of the, right. the actual participants. It, it right. somehow carries carries on. Is this you know, two, 50 years from now, will we still be talking about the legacy of Vietnam, or might we be talking about the legacy of Afghanistan or, or, or something else? Yeah. And, and you know that uh, um, I was trying to say something that sort of answers your question a little earlier. Um, there has been a, a uh, it's been a long journey. It's, it's almost what, 36, seven years now since the end of the war. And during um, uh, Gerald Ford's time and during Jimmy Carter's time, Vietnam was an active spoken obsession. With Reagan, it began to be more quiet, but there all the time, all the time. With Bush one, all the time. With Clinton, Clinton was running away from Vietnam. He didn't serve there. Mrs. Clinton wrote in her book that Bill would have been happy to serve in World War II because he approved of that war. But he didn't approve of Vietnam, so we didn't have to serve there. Um, Clinton tried very hard to escape, but the fact of the matter is that he could not, as any of the others, Bush, Bush too. A most interesting response to the whole Vietnam thing. He said that if Clinton objected and feared boots on the ground, he wanted boots on the ground, Bush too did, as quickly as possible. At 6 p.m. on September 12th, in the Pentagon, he brought everybody together, and uh, Rumsfeld began to tell them about what's going on with the Northern Alliance and the this and the that in Afghanistan. And he blew his stack, and he said, I'm not interested in any of that. I want to know when are you going to have boots on the ground. I want you to have in there. I want them. I want a lot of them there, and I want you to clobber them. I want you to go after the guys who did this and, and beat them. Um, Bush, too, um, had a couple at the very beginning of his administration, a couple of reporters asked him, I don't, asked him at some length at a couple of news conferences, doesn't this seem like, after, uh, like Vietnam all over again? And he gave a couple of terrific answers. Clearly, he was very well briefed. And his answers said that this is something that we are not going to repeat the mistakes of Vietnam. Uh, this is very much on my mind, and I'm, I can assure you, he said. And another interesting thing about Bush, too, was that when Condoleezza Rice went over to be Secretary of State, um, she suggested Stephen Hadley to replace her as National Security Advisor. Um, and according to Bush, <coughs> too, that was perfectly fine with him. But it was not that fine with Hadley. Hadley, is, if, you, if any of you know him, he's a very uh, decent guy, a very good lawyer. Um, very honorable man, and he, in his mind, he didn't want to take the job 
I mean, he's not the kind of guy who's going to say no to the president. But he really did not want to take the job because he feared at that time that we were going into another Vietnam experience in Iraq. And so he went to see the president. He spoke to him two days in a row on the same issue. And he told me that the Bush too told him that it'll never happen on his ship, that he will never allow it to happen. And that might explain why, when the U.S. was really stuck in Iraq in 07, 08, he decided to put in another 28,000 troops. And that was because he, he, he was impatient with the whole idea of having to sort of pot around. He wanted he wanted it done and wanted it done fast. And I think that this kind of stuff goes on and probably is likely to go on for yet a good bit of time. And as I said before, it may not be that you, you actually say Vietnam is the reason, but you talk about the lessons of Vietnam and they stick with the presidents. Thank you. Well, let's open up uh, for questions. Give priority to students, uh, first if there are any students here who have Questions? Yes. Yeah, uh, it sounds like um, you believe that uh, um, many uh, the, the different presidents have learned different lessons from the Vietnam, it's uh, the Vietnam War, and uh, also sounds like when you talking that uh, many of them learned the wrong lessons from the Vietnam War. Many no, of the what? The wrong lessons. Wrong lessons. Yeah, but what I'm uh, my question is. Uh, what is the correct lessons that we should learn from when, uh, from the Vietnam War, and have we learned it or not? By we, including the presidents and the general public. Yeah. Um, uh, it is a good question, <coughs> and uh, and worth asking. And I wish I had a uh, a better answer. As I said earlier, all of the presidents were affected by Vietnam, but they all learned it in different ways, depending on their own political experience, whether they served there or not. Um, Gore, for example, um, volunteered for service as an army journalist in Vietnam because his father at that time was running for re-election in Tennessee. His father was anti-war. But the Gore family in Tennessee wanted to show everybody that there's my son is fighting over there. So, you know, there are different reasons that run through a lot of different <coughs> presidential heads. If there is a single lesson that I would draw from it, but hardly a but um, if you're going to commit American troops to war, know what you're doing and know a lot about where you're sending them. Know a little bit about the, the history and the culture and perhaps the religion of the area that you're sending them to. Because it isn't the same thing to send troops to Vietnam and to send troops to Afghanistan. They end up policy terms the same, but it's a totally different kind of thing. You're dealing with different people who want different things. We never paid any attention to Vietnam, to nationalism. Um, and yet anybody who was out there, a lot of the, of the reporters, including my brother, I'm happy to say, would, was writing about, broadcasting about 
the power of nationalism <clears throat> in 64 and 5. Um, but it took us a lot longer to learn that. We didn't, the war wasn't over until 75. 58,000 people died there. And you have to ask yourself, for what? Right now, Hillary Clinton is seeking an alliance between the United States and Vietnam against China. Other student questions? I, I, uh, sort of along those lines, I wanted to ask if, if there's a tension between the, the, the question, the carry question, who's going to be the last person to die from a mistake, and the, it, the statement, good enough is not good enough. I understand good enough is not good enough for when you're contemplating whether to go into a war. But when the war is there, is there a tension between good enough isn't good enough and, well, how long are we going to be there with people running? Of course. Absolutely. There is a, a daily tension on that issue. And if you talk to the people at the embassy, they will tell you that they're involved in a constant struggle. Um, <coughs> their feeling about what it is realistically that we can accomplish there. Having been there now 10 years, so you get a good sense of what you can do and what you can't do. So what, what realistically can we do? Is there anything like victory that you can point to? And if you can, what would it look like? Give me a couple of sentences on that. If it's a loss, what is that going to look like? And how will that be interpreted by the American people? or by the world for that matter. And above and beyond all of that, there is the conscience of a president. Because while, this is another thing that, uh, I'm sort of embarrassed to acknowledge this, but um, as a reporter, you, you kind of cover these guys and you think you know them pretty well. And, and most of the time you do, most of the time. But every now and then you forget that they too are people. And when they're sending young people off to war, it's, a, it, it's I mean, there's, there's a reason why Obama's getting gray. Uh, and it's not just the economy. You can't, I, I believe, and this is what I hear, that you can't be indifferent to what it is that you're doing. It's not just an act of policy when you send somebody off to war. Let's think about it. In, in Libya, the president at the very beginning, was really abusing. In the very beginning, he said, um, we're going to be involved here in, uh, in days, he said, days if not, you know, weeks or not days. He just wanted to say to the American people, you know, please, easy does it, kid. We're not really getting involved here. The other guys will get involved. It's about time the other NATO members got involved, that sort of thing. But it's very, it, it, particularly for somebody who's never been in the military, has no military experience at all, none. When he walked in, one reason, it's funny in a way, one reason he, he asked uh, Jim Jones, the Marine retired general, big guy, my, my height, but like that, um, he wanted, because Petraeus is only about five, eight, or nine. And he wanted somebody much taller than him. <laughs> no 
lots of medals also. So if there was a conflict, he had his gun that he could hide behind. It sounds silly, but it, it's not. There are reasons why they do these things. Other, other students or were just up in the where Go ahead. Uh, Marm, as I recall, the U.S. Go ahead. got more intense about Vietnam uh, when China got involved. And I recall just a bus trip through Vietnam a year or so ago, and the guy kept saying, well, there's a military camp over there, there's a military camp. And I said, well, what are you defending against? And he said, the same people that we had as the enemy for 2,000 years, the Chinese. How come the CIA, the, all the intelligence community didn't point out that um, Vietnam and China were never going to be uh, together uh, for very long. I mean, that, I think, wasn't, didn't that push us further because once China was involved in Vietnam? And, that, uh, and of course, that was, wasn't going to last. No, no, clearly that predates haunting legacy, right? You're right. Going back for um, To the best of my knowledge, the um, <coughs> The Vietnam War was fought in a context of the Cold War. We, China was Russia, they, they had their problems, but they were communists and we had to take them on. We didn't want another country to fall communists. So we were not interested in things like Vietnamese nationalism or the history of Vietnam's wars with China, not at all. And in fact, the Chinese had a couple of hundred thousand troops on their border with Vietnam, which we interpreted as an involvement, a potential involvement of the Chinese against the United States, which it might have been, which it might have been, but it could have been the other two. Because in 1979, in fact, the Chinese did cross the border, and there was a China war with the Vietnamese, Very, a couple, only a couple of years after we were kicked out. Isn't one of the uh, lasting legacies of Vietnam that Americans will no longer tolerate high death rate among American fighting forces, and therefore increasingly the current war and future wars in particular will be fought by robotics and remote weapon systems? Well, maybe not only robotics. There are a lot of volunteers who do the fighting now for the American States. It's, um, I mean, statistically, it's, it's terrible when you say it, but... Um, <clears throat> it's something like 0.6 of 1% of the American people fight on behalf of 99.4% of the American people. Now, they're all volunteers, they volunteer for it, that's their job. <clears throat> so you can't, you know, it's, it's not robotic as yet. Um, there are people there who would die. Um, <clears throat> so I, I don't buy into um, the idea that, that because, look, if there, were, if there were a draft now, as there was during the Vietnam War, think about what would be going on on this campus. Right? I mean, just think about that for a second. There were, um, the whole tenor of the politics would change. Everything would change. Because then you'd be dealing with you. And you might not want to go to war. You know, the whole thing is, is dramatically different and raises questions about national service. Uh, if, 
In other words, maybe a nation ought to have national service so that you can have people who wish to fight and people who don't wish to fight, but still wish to participate in what is good for their country. In the, in the back there, yes. Yeah. So it, in the weeks and months leading up to the Afghanistan and Iraq uh, invasions, um, there were a number of people uh, amongst the American people who were opposed to these conflicts, but there was also a significant number that, that supported them. So has a concept of, of getting a loss in a Vietnam type engagement somewhat lost upon the American people. Um, and even even after uh, you know the, the trouble that we've had with both of those leaders, do you still, you know, following that previous question, do you still think that uh, Americans would be willing to support future uh, engagements that were stimulated by, by terrible events like 9-11 and whatnot? Yeah, well, the 9-11, Cheney told us at one point that the 9-11, um, he said, changed everything. Everything we were planning to do changed on that day. Um, and that he suggested, he quite stated, he suggested that um, things that, that were questionable, we determined had to be done to stop the possibility of, a, of a, another attack on the United States. And I think that for a period of a year or two after 9-11, um, the president could have led us up a garden path and we'd have followed because the, 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 the nationalism was so strong, patriotism was so high, that we would have done anything because there was something ugly that had been done against this country. Marvin, I want to put you back in your book for a little bit. Um, I, and I think, you know, reading between the lines of what you said earlier, probably Bush one and Reagan were quite thoughtful about how cultural differences might intersect with the lessons of Vietnam. Uh, More Bush one than Reagan. Reagan. But, but he was still reluctant to respond to the Beirut Absolutely. Right? <clears throat> Can you work on the bottom side of that uh, in your investigation, um, which president and staff seem to be the least thoughtful uh, in this dimension? Yeah. Um, I can't really say that any of them were not thoughtful. I think each of them, for different reasons, sent troops or reacted to, to a challenge um, in a reasonably thoughtful manner. I, I believe that that is the case. The, the one who is trickiest here is Jimmy Carter because there's so much religion in his judgments. Jimmy Carter believed that he could have a bloodless presidency. That's what he said. In fact, when he sent, um, it was an unfortunate disaster as it turned out, but he sent people to try to rescue the hostages in Iran. And the colonel who was in charge of it was brought into the Oval Office and the president said to him, I want this to be a bloodless operation and I do not wish for you to shoot. I do, in fact, I'm sorry. 
he, he ordered him not to shoot an Iranian unless the Iranian shot at him first. There was that, that kind of mind was at work there. And when the colonel, I forgot his name, Beckwood, something like that, walked out of the office with the major who was going to go with him up to Iran, the major turned to him and he said, did you hear what the guy said? He said, yeah. He said, well, we're not going to do that. He said, no. He said, we have to kill him, we'll kill him. Because it was, there was a, a disconnect there, born of a belief, apparently, that you can run a military operation without using weapons. Carry them with you, but don't use them. There was, Carter of all seven puzzled me the most because I couldn't quite figure out on each of his major decisions what role was not religious. To what extent was religion determining public policy? And that um, was troubled me, but it raised questions in my mind as to other issues that would come up and how decisions were reached here and there. And that was another one of those presidents that I thought I knew, but didn't. Yes, sir. So, thank you. Um, I'm Colonel Stephen Mariano. I'm an Army fellow here at the Weatherhead Center. So, full transparency, I'm working on a dissertation on this uh, same same topic, but from the military really? perspective. <laughs> yes, sir. So, re say what you're <laughs> read, read your book, and, uh, and the theme, though, exactly this theme is uh, loved your book, learned a lot. Um, big gap, though, in my view, the chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff do not feature in the book, and the advice that they give to the president is not pronounced. There's, it, it appears in spots, but that wasn't a theme. So I was hoping you could elaborate on a little bit on what role did the chairman play throughout the seven presidents? It depended on the chairman and it depended on the president each time. Um, <coughs> for example, with Ford, it was, it, he listened to the chairman, um, but it was not the chair that he listened to, really. It was the Secretary of Defense. And he found out with Schlesinger that he was having terrible trouble with him. And so much trouble, as a matter of fact, that he, in effect, fired Schlesinger after, I think, only a year in office. Because during the Mayaguez uh, crisis, he, um, he, he would give orders, and Schlesinger didn't obey them. Um, that happened also, by the way, with Reagan. According, according to McFarland, I have to be clear on the sourcing. According to McFarland and Schultz, two sources, Reagan gave an order to uh, bomb the bad guys, not in Baalbek, but nearby. It went so far as to involve the French, and the French were part of that air operation. But in the middle of the night, Weinberg had killed it. He, he stopped a presidential order. And in the morning, uh, Schultz, who, was, who did not get on with Weinberg, and McFarland, who was puzzled by Weinberg, both called him and said, what the hell are you doing? I mean, that was a presidential order. You can't do that. He says, oh, don't worry about it. I'll talk to the president later. It'll be fine. And that 
also, again, has to do with the nature of Reagan. He was the sort of guy, if somebody close to him, who we trusted, and, and Weinberg was one of them, if somebody came to him and said, you know, you really can't do this, Mr. President, this is bad, it's just wrong for us to do it. He didn't want to fight anybody. So there was an order, there wasn't an order, you're never really sure. It's misty. A question behind you here. Sorry about that. I, sorry, I, I was late. Yeah. <coughs> no, no, knowing what we know, I'm first this is the Malcolm Wiener fellow at the Gates. Knowing what we know of Vietnam, <coughs> Iraq, and Afghanistan now, and there are lots of lessons to be learned, lots of things that, you know, one from. Um, what's the potential for what I would characterize as a preemptive diplomatic and or political strike when there is trouble brewing? Uh, that would include, you know, not just um, uh, traditional NATO allies, but also, you know, countries like China and India. Brazil and so forth. You mean action against? No, no, not action, action against, action with. And I say this because there are countless examples of um, instances where something could be achieved quite, um, you know, quite um, reasonably if it was for a greater dialogue with um, China, Russia, and so forth. And the most recent example that we see is the Chinese and the Russian veto in the Security Council over the Syrian situation, when in fact, that if there was you know, potentially more diplomacy, more political uh, action, uh, a greater sort of you know, understanding of what the Chinese and the Russians were coming from, perhaps this could be avoided. Uh, because what it does is that if you have a veto or if you go into a war, it's, you know, it's game over in so far as diplomacy is concerned for the short run. And it's you know, over to something with consequences that are you know, never that good. I mean, it's you know, the fallout of major wars, etc., is, 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 is quite terrible. And we I don't are, think anybody could argue uh, against the point that you're raising. But it's sure, impossible it's, that well, no, I, I hear you. Um, it will depend ultimately on the president, what sort of president he is. It will depend ultimately on the people around him, the kind of advice that he gets, if he listens to that, his own experience uh, with war. But above and beyond that, um, I have a sense that we are at a, at a point in our diplomacy right now where vigorous diplomatic effort uh, either produces very little. I think that Hillary Clinton has done yeoman's work in the Middle East but nowhere. Can she do much, much more? Yes, she could have, but she didn't. Um, I don't see um, <coughs> dramatic diplomacy as affecting important issues at this point. And that's a terrible thing to say, but I see no evidence of that at all. I, I think the, the U.S. government right now is so totally and understandably absorbed with the economy that we seem paralyzed to do just about anything other than the economy. 
And things happen around the world, and, and in a number of cases, we know that they're bad and not uh, helpful to the long-term interests of the United States, but we do nothing about it because we can't. We're sort of paralyzed right now. It's, it's a most unfortunate scene, and part of it is Obama, part of it is a lack of experience, part of it is the depth of the problems themselves. No one could, I don't know anybody that I talk to anyway in Washington. I, I go from one think tank to another, and I assume that everybody I talk to is thinking, but I haven't come up with, I mean, it's a think tank. But I haven't come up really on the economy right now, this problem. I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe 20, 30 years from now, somebody's going to write a terrific book about how the media failed us at this point because it didn't deal with the issues in, in the way that it should have. And maybe that's going to work out that way. I don't know, but, but there are lots of huge things happening to us right now, right in front of us right now, that we are not dealing with in a mature way. Yes. Okay, uh, two questions. Yes. Professor Powell, nice to see you here. Follow up on what you just said. Uh, who's not dealing with the important things in front of us? Is it the media or is it the government? And that's my first quick question. Um, I think both. Uh, both journalists are not very adventurous people. I think that's a point we've made here for 25 years now. They, journalists generally like to follow belief of somebody rather than start it. And uh, they're waiting for something to happen so that they could latch onto it. And maybe there's a sense of greater comfort to follow the leader in that respect. But there is not the depth, the, the repetitive, deep analysis of issues that one would imagine you'd see at this point. But we, we don't see it. Uh, maybe, maybe around this table it has been discussed, and you all know it. You just haven't told people about it. But I can tell you that in Washington there is not any feeling that I have. I could be dead wrong about this and hope that I am. But I do not see, I don't see um, Republicans at this point rising above uh, politics to do something about, quote, the national interest. I don't see the president coming in with any big bold ideas, um, he fritters around the edges, and and everything sort of, sort of uh, I've got the expression, but you know you can have something and on the edges it begins to tear away, and then you're, you're left with a smaller core, and you don't know um, how small that core is or, or what is left there. Um, I mean the United States is still a great power, and there's no question about what other countries in the world think they can do if we took a dramatic uh, position, something that this gentleman here was, was suggesting a moment ago. But it isn't happening. It really isn't. I mean, I spent a lot of time studying the Middle East. And um, I could have told you from day one that when, Clinton, when Obama decided to go after the Israelis on the settlements, that that would get them nowhere, and it has got to nowhere. And since that time, there has been no large thought. There is there is neither the large thought nor the energy that a Kissinger would devote 
to a problem. Um, Kissinger faced some very rough times uh, in the early 70s, but he always believed, he does to this day, that there is a solution to these problems. You just have to apply yourself and get at it and do it nonstop. Have you seen Hillary Clinton go to do a repeat of a shuttle diplomacy in the Middle East? Just go there and don't leave until you get something. No, it's, uh, it doesn't cost you. There's a fear. Second, did you have it? Is it, oh, fair, yeah. is it fair for me to ask another one? Well, we have probably uh, time for uh, just a quick one, and then we have one, maybe time for one more after that. So, uh, Margaret, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Mr. Cobb said that after reading Reagan's letters and diaries, you felt yes. different about him than you did when you reported yes. on him. You talked a little bit about the Weinberger uh, yes. objection. What, what else did you see? Did you, were you? There was a dimension in his letters um, about issues that were taking place at that time that if you as a reporter were going to the briefings and talking to people at the White House and trying to figure it out and write a story about it at night, um, you missed a lot. You missed a lot of what was in his mind and what the issues were that he was thinking about. Um, see, if you start with an assumption that this guy doesn't have that much of a mind, and that this is all kind of, you know, one, two, three, and Jim Baker is telling me what to say and all that. No. He was, he was doing his own thinking about these problems, but it, it, it evolved out of a different, he's not, not an intellectual. He doesn't, didn't read that much, but he had a, a gut feeling about things and huge gut feeling about Vietnam and the caution that he suddenly felt we had to deal with. Part of it had to do with the economy then, too. But once he sort of broke out of the economy, he threw all kinds of money uh, at the military. He told Frank Carlucci, who was in charge of it at the time, spend as much money as Dick uh, uh, spend as much money as you like. Doesn't make any difference how much you spend. At a certain point, Congress will tell us no, and then we'll stop. But in the meantime, <laughs> keep spending, because we got to build it up. And what, what's on his mind was, you build up American military strength. And he had in mind also that the Russians were not 10 feet tall. And they would begin to, to lose power as well. And they did. Now, how did he know that? He didn't know it. He just felt it. It was in his gut. Turned out to be right. Last question. Yes, sir. Then what do you think Obama should do? And what do you think he will do? Will he really withdraw the troops from Afghanistan? I have no idea what he will do. Well, no. what do you think he should do? <laughs> and what about the and, troops and as far as what to bring home from that? I thought from the beginning that Biden had probably the best feel for it, and that was rather than build up a force of 100,000, uh, build up a very mobile force of twenty to 25,000 to be retained in the south eastern part of Afghanistan and whose principal responsibility would be to keep an eye on the nuclear weapons in Pakistan across the border. And if Pakistan were to begin some political disintegration 
and the question was then raised as to who was in charge of these <coughs> nuclear weapons, of which there are 120 according to recent count. Those soldiers would have a major responsibility to make sure they don't fall into the wrong hands. But as far as using American military force to build up um, Afghanistan and turn it into a, a, a model Jeffersonian democracy, <laughs> it simply is not going to happen. When a general, um, I forgot which one now, uh, he was at Brookings a couple of days ago, was telling us in explaining why we should be there, he was telling us that there are now many, many, many more uh, girls going to school uh, than ever before in Afghan's history. Well, I am delighted that all those girls are going to school. Wonderful. But that's not the reason you put 100,000 troops into running Afghanistan. Not the reason you have to send letters to families every day or every week saying, I'm sorry, your son was killed. But, you know, he did a great thing for our country. What was the great thing? Uh, I find that there's a failure to communicate a true and genuine purpose right now for uh, extended and deep American involvement in a military sense in Afghanistan. I just don't see it. Well, Marvin, I think we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for sharing. Thank